You can open to Exodus 21 or Psalm 51 or Psalm 139. We're going to look at all of them. So you can open to one or all of them. Put your fingers in them and go back and forth, but they'll all be on the screen for you anyway. The title of this message is Abortion, the Bible, and a Way Forward. Abortion, the Bible, and a Way Forward. I do want to say that when it comes to this topic, there's no way that I could possibly be comprehensive. I'm not competent enough to be comprehensive, nor do we have the time for me to be comprehensive. So in light of that, for those of you that know a lot about this issue and this issue is near and dear to you, you're sure to be disappointed. There's going to be something I didn't cover, something I didn't say, some angle that I missed. So I'm sure that I'll disappoint many of you and I'm prepared for that. I also want to say that um, I'm, I'm speaking mostly to a Christian audience, and, and that's my target with what I'm saying today, and so I'll approach the topic a certain way. If I were speaking to a non-Christian audience, which I would love to do on this issue, I would approach it a different way. But being that I'm speaking predominantly to Christians, I have two primary concerns. Number one, how does Scripture inform and shape how we think about and feel about the issue of abortion? And number two, how should we interact as Christians with the broader culture concerning the issue of abortion? There are so many ways that we could approach this topic. There's so much that we could talk about, so much that we could look at. It's important that we see images that have to do with the unborn and abortion. It's important that we see those images. And I, I, I looked at those images this week. Um, we, we won't be looking at those today. It's important that we hear the statistics. I looked at all of them this week and thought deeply on all of them. I'm not going to give you a bunch of statistics today, though that's important. It's important that we engage with the related sciences. It's important that we're aware of uh, the political implications. But I want to say at the outset that abortion is not primarily an issue of politic or science. It is primarily an issue of God and gospel. It has first to do with God and with the gospel. And I want to say also that I'm not a scientist or a politician. And as a pastor, you shouldn't want me to be. And, and so I, I'm not an expert in those things. And you should not expect your pastor to be an expert in things pertaining to silence, uh, science or politics or, or anything else. I, I know the Bible a little bit, and I endeavor by God's grace to teach that. And that's what you can expect from me. I also want to say that our church is not a political church. We're rather apolitical. We're not Democratic or whatever the other party is, Republican or Green or anything else. And my last disclaimer is this, long before American politics existed and long after they will be gone, there was and there is the word of God. And it is the word of God upon which we stand and it is the word of God through which we approach and process this issue of abortion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We are scarcely aware of how we must appear before you as a nation and, and even the church in the way that we've handled this issue. And we would just ask for grace and mercy, Lord. We would ask that you would open our eyes, that we would feel what you want us to feel and that we would think what you want us to think. Lord, I, I confess that I'm nervous to speak about this. I'm, I'm intimidated by it. I, I don't feel competent or 
fully prepared. And I, I ask for grace, Lord, that I would rightly represent you, your word and your heart and your character in this issue. We ask together that you would anoint me, that I could communicate your truth in a way that is transformative for the church, for the furtherance of your purposes and the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Much of the debate concerning the abortion issue hinges on the concept of personhood. Personhood. In other words, when is it a person that is present in the mother and not just a blob of cells? Not merely life. Okay, just life isn't the issue because sperm and eggs are alive. Twigs are alive. Life isn't the issue, but, but personhood is the issue. We kill sperm and eggs all the time. But we're not supposed to kill people. If what is in the pregnant woman is a person and not just a clump of cells, then the issue becomes a little clearer because we don't kill people. So the question that we need to ask as Christians thinking about this is, does the Bible speak to the issue of personhood and when it may occur in a pregnancy from God's perspective as creator? So we'll approach that first in Psalm 139. And the initial thing that I would say is that the Bible declares that life in the womb at any stage is from God and precious to God. Psalm 139, we'll start reading verse 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The psalmist here is David, and he says to God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Here's what I want us to glean from that. The psalmist David here, under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to himself as a distinct person. He says, me or my, denoting personhood, several times, okay? He refers to himself in the womb as a person, me, my, personhood. He also is simultaneously celebrating in this passage the beauty of life and confirming it as being a work of God, saying that he was being woven together and who could be doing the weaving but God himself. So he's confirming personhood in the womb and that what is in the womb is beautiful and it's of God. So, Scripture here would seem to suggest that pregnancy has to do with a person and something that is precious. The ambiguity here is that there's no timing mentioned by the psalmist in, in 139. We don't know if this is a first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Here's why that's important. Most people would agree that at some point in a pregnancy... Okay, that thing, that fetus, becomes a person at some point. There are those who would say that doesn't happen until the fetus is born and breathes in air. And they try to ground that in Genesis where it says, and God breathed life into the man. I, I, I would reject that. Personhood must take place before that. 
But there's some ambiguity here in this psalm. So, so is there the possibility that in Scripture we could somehow pinpoint when personhood might begin? Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, seem to indicate that personhood may begin at conception. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 1, the psalmist says to God, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Verse 5 is a potent one for us. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. The psalmist says that he was born a sinner even from the moment his mother conceived him. Is it possible that from God's perspective, personhood might begin at conception? Is that a a possibility here? You see, Only a person can be categorized as a sinner. He said, I'm a sinner from the moment of conception. He's not talking about the act of sin, but the inheritance of original sin. Only a person could be deemed a sinner. He's claiming personhood from conception. And and I would just say to the church that the debates this issue of when personhood begins for the fetus, if we're going to err in any way on this, don't, don't we want to err on the side of it possibly happening very early in light of what this psalm says? If we're going to err, don't we want to be generous from God's perspective as to when personhood might begin? And this passage seems to indicate that the issue of personhood is addressed here as being at conception. Now, Scripture also is clear on the issue of the sanctity of life. Sanctity meaning of ultimate importance or inviolability. In fact, God sees the unborn as being even more precious than others in society. We're going to see that in a moment. God sees the unborn as being even more precious and worthy of protection than others in society, and he gave his people laws to protect the unborn and the pregnant woman. Exodus 21, we'll read verses 22 through 25. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This section of scripture is concerning cases of personal injury. God telling his people how to deal with stuff when stuff goes wrong. Verse 22 of Exodus 21. Now suppose two men are fighting and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. But if there's further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. So here we see that if two men are engaged in some sort of conflict, some physical altercation, and a pregnant woman is injured, and it causes her to have an early birth, that if woman and baby are okay, then there's a fine that's imposed. It's agreed upon by the husband, the father, and the judges. Merely a fine. But, but if the woman and the baby are injured 
or, or either is killed in any way, then there is a severe punishment, a like punishment. This is where we hear life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, I'm in no way suggesting that in our society we should have that sort of punishment for abortion. We are living in the age of the gospel in light of the cross and what Christ has done. That's not what I'm saying. Here is what I'm suggesting. Is that this passage is saying that the woman and the unborn child are considered of equal value and are given equal legal protection. Both are seen by God as being persons. There's two conclusions that we could draw from this. Number one, you cannot then, biblically speaking, hold women's rights over and against the rights of the unborn. Let me just take an aside for a moment and discuss that with you. Because a lot of people would want to couch this in the context of being an issue of women's rights. We can't do that biblically in light of this passage, but I would suggest that we can't do that societally either. Don't we all understand that each one of us has to give up at different times what would seem to be reasonable rights for the protection and the betterment of others? Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, I have a right to drive as fast as I want to drive. I have to give up that right every single day for the betterment and the protection of others. Some would say that we have a right to drink a few beers and go drive. But we together society say, you know what? You've got to give up that right because of the dangers and the consequences involved. Some would say in the NRA, we should have the right to discharge our firearms within city limits. And society says that would be a reasonable right probably at one time, but because of the dangers that it proposes in our context, you need to give up that right. Don't, don't we all understand in society that for the weaker, for the lesser, for the betterment of others, we all at various times in different ways give up reasonable rights? So it's not really fair, societally speaking, or biblically speaking, to couch this merely as an issue of women's rights. Scripture seems to say that the pregnant woman and the unborn have equal rights. The second thing that we can draw from this is that God values the process and persons involved in pregnancy more than the general population. As I already said, this is evidence in scripture. When we look elsewhere in the Old Testament and we see how God told Israel to deal with manslaughter or accidental injury, it wasn't life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If someone accidentally killed someone, that's called manslaughter, then they could flee to what was called a city of refuge and there they could live under legal protection the rest of their days, or at least until the priest in that city died. They could live there free from revenge or anything else. God made provision. But God makes a different provision for the unborn and the pregnant woman. They seem to be valued. There seems to be a different sanctity when it comes to the protection of the unborn. Wayne Grudem, in commenting on this, says, this passage means that God established for Israel a law code that placed higher value on protecting the life of the pregnant woman and her preborn child than the life of anyone else in Israelite society. Far from treating the death of a preborn child as less significant than the death of others in society, this law treats the death of a preborn child or its mother as more significant and worthy of more severe punishment. 
So might we be able to say from God's perspective that the right of the child, which is unborn, is of utmost importance, even in light of the rights of women? A couple more things that we want to note here. There's no restriction in this passage on how far along the pregnancy was. Child could have, it could have been a miscarriage very early on or, or late in the term. And this penalty that God says here, which is very harsh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is a penalty for an accidental killing. So, so if God is this serious about the accidental harm or killing of the unborn, how serious is God about the intentional harm or killing of the unborn and pregnant women? So there appears to be the concept of sanctity of life for an unborn child from God's perspective as evidenced by the laws that he gave Israel. The possible conclusion then from these three passages is this. Number one, it's possible that personhood is assumed from the moment of conception. Number two, the unborn child should be given at least the same legal protection as anyone else in society, actually more from God's perspective. And so the logic then of this issue is this. Number one, we should not kill other people. Unborn children are people. Therefore, unborn children must be protected at all costs. This seems to be the view of Scripture. Now, I must admit that there's many sincere, Christ-honoring, smarter-than-me Christians who would disagree with my interpretation and application of those passages for multitudinous and various reasons that I won't argue for them at this time. In that case, we can take a different approach, one that is grounded then in the broad principles of the New Testament that surely all Christians agree upon. We've got to ground it in broad principles in the, in the New Testament New Testament, did I say old? I meant new. We gotta ground it in the broad principles of the New Testament because the New Testament does not speak directly to the issue. But are there some broad principles that we can glean from that would inform and shape how we think and feel about abortion? There are at least four. The first one is this, that in both the Gospel of John and the book of Colossians, all life is seen as coming from God through Christ. All life is seen as coming from God through Christ. John 1, 3 through 4 says, All things came into being through Him, that is Jesus. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So then, wherever there is life of any sort, Wherever life of any sort begins, the creative power of God in Christ is at work. Humanity gets to participate in the creative work of God through impregnation and through pregnancy. We, we get to participate in the creative work of God. But it's ultimately God who imparts life. By way of analogy, we understand this when it comes to new life or the second birth or being born again. We get to participate in it through evangelism and communicating and demonstrating the gospel. But if somebody's going to be converted, only God can make someone brand new. Only God can make them born again. But we played a very distinct and important role. So we play a distinct and important role in the creation of life, but it is only God 
And any time that there's new life, it is a creative force of God in Christ bringing it about. Therefore, to terminate a pregnancy would be an act of violence and an act of destroying what God has done. Now, what this approach does is removes the burden of the question of personhood because then whether or not the fetus is, is a lump of cells or a person doesn't matter because it is a creative expression of God. It is a work of God's creative power in Christ. So, so to destroy it would be wrong in the same way that, that murder or suicide would be wrong. It, it would be assuming the authority to take something that's not ours to take because God created it in Christ Jesus. We can also look at broad ethical principles taught in the New Testament. My second point is this. The parable of the Good Samaritan, what Jesus is doing in the parable of the Good Samaritan is attempting to expand our understanding of who our neighbor is. Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to a religious leader who had been confronted with this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so then he said, well, who's my neighbor? His goal in asking that question was to narrow the definition, to narrow the scope of responsibility and moral obligation. I gotta love my neighbor like myself. Who's my neighbor? Tell me almost no one. And what Jesus is doing in the parable of the Good Samaritan is pushing us to go beyond a sense of mere duty to only certain people and to provide life-sustaining aid to those who previously may have seemed unworthy. Jesus is pushing us in that parable to go beyond mere duty to some people and be willing to provide life-sustaining aid to all people, including those who would have seemed, from our perspective, unworthy in some way. This would apply, in this instance, to both the mother in a crisis pregnancy and her unborn child. So then, with this ethical understanding for the New Testament, for, for a Christian to ask, is the fetus a, a person is very much like the religious leader asking, well, who is my neighbor? It's an attempt to narrow the scope of moral obligation. It's an, it's a, it's an attempt to want to do less and to care less for less. But Christ is always beckoning us to care more and to do more for more. It's an attempt to narrow the scope of our moral obligation and compassion when Jesus would always call us to expand it. Next, we could look at the New Testament's call to care for and be generous with the needy, both within the church and outside the church. Now, let's just talk about within the church for a moment. Within the church, we know that we are called to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. We know from the example of the early church in Acts chapter 4 that when anyone within the church was in need, the others covered them. Whatever that need was, they covered them. They took care of each other in that way. So, ideally, it, we're really far from this, but, but, but if the church ever got to where we were supposed to be, in, in this New Testament ideal of, of bearing each other's burdens, of caring for each other, of 
of providing for each other, if we ever got to where we were supposed to be, then there would be no need for man or woman or anyone to seek an abortion on the grounds of financial burden or an inability to care for the baby. Because, because we would be saying as a community of faith, if you can't afford it, we'll pay for it. If you can't afford to do this, we'll provide. If you have an inability to raise this child, we'll come alongside you and raise this child. We will raise this child. Whatever you are lacking, we will make up because that's who we are as a church. That's the ideal of Christ. That's, that, that, that's a picture of the New Testament. And here's why that would be profound because the vast majority of abortions are performed because there's a sense that I, I cannot afford, we cannot, right? The man is just as guilty as the woman. We cannot afford this or, or we are unable to bear this. Now, everyone, when you say something like that, will say, well, what about cases of rape and incest? A worthy, of question, a worthy question, but we need to realize that those account for at most 1% of all abortions. Someone would say, well, what about the question of when the mother's life is in danger. Well, that would account for 0.118% of all abortions. So even if, even if those are a gift, and I, I don't know, but even if those are a gift, if, if we ever begin to live like we're supposed to live according to the New Testament, we would effectively eliminate the need for 98% of all abortions. Within the church, we would eliminate the need. And if we developed a culture of love like Christ is beckoning us to, then we would feel okay enough to come to one another and say, I have an unplanned pregnancy, and I can't do this. And we would pick up the slack. And then imagine if we started to do that in the world, because we're not just called to care for each other as Christians, we're called to care for the needy in the world, the helpless in the world, the overwhelmed in the world. Think of how far beyond protesting that would go. One preacher said it this way, quote, changes in the law, blocking abortion clinics, demeaning name-calling will never stop abortions. The history of the church through the ages has been the history of changes brought about in society through the church demonstrating and living an alternate vision for life. We need to stop telling our non-believing neighbors how wrong their way of life is and need to start showing the power of the gospel in the way we live. And let me ask you, he continues, which has greater power? 10,000 people who fill the streets in front of abortion clinics and shame those seeking abortions, or 10,000 people in California who take to the state capitol in a petition they have signed stating that they will take any unwanted child of any age, any color, any physical condition so that they can love that child in the name of Jesus Christ. Which is more powerful? A final approach in a broad ethical sweep of the New Testament is the possibility of living lives that imitate Christ. And we are beckoned throughout the New Testament as Christians to do this. What Jesus did was surrendered his rights and his freedom to suffer and die for us. Jesus surrendered his rights as God and his freedom as a man to suffer and to die for us. We, who before Christ 
We're helpless and weak. So the Christian ideal then is that we're to be imitators of Christ who would be willing to give up certain rights and lose certain freedoms and even suffer for the well-being of others. That's the call to imitate Christ. And, and we all understand, as I referenced earlier, that from time to time we have to give up certain reasonable rights for the benefit of the weaker. Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 8 where he said, I've got no problem eating meat sacrificed to idols, but if there's weaker Christians for whom that is a problem, then I'll never eat meat again. Paul said, I'm willing to just give up certain rights and comforts and, and privileges for the weak and the helpless. To imitate Christ is to be willing to sacrifice much and to give up much and to forego much to help those who are most vulnerable and weak and helpless. Certainly that would be the unborn. unborn. I think this would mean an application in an ideal real world that we Christians would be willing to receive any child any child, no matter how difficult the issues. Part of the abortion talk is that every child should be wanted. The church should make every child wanted. If we're going to be faithful to imitate Christ, then we should be willing to say, we will take on your behalf. We will adopt any child, no matter what the circumstances. Did you know that for unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb, at least 90% of them are aborted. Do you know a child with Down syndrome? You know how beautiful they are? There's one little girl at our Ventura campus, Maya. She's about my daughter's age and child with Down syndrome, and she is so beautiful and so full of life, and her smile is like nobody else's smile in the world, and she loves me, and I love her, and she calls me Pastor Brent. When I see her, she hugs me, and she holds me, and she kisses me, and my heart soars at the life and the love that comes from this little girl. And to think that our society would say that they're unwanted. You see, if, if we ever got to the place as the church of living like we're supposed to live, being willing to bear the burden of any child, any mother, there'd be almost no need for any abortion at any time. Almost no need almost no need if we were who we were. So how do we as the church then address and begin to remedy the issue of abortion in, in culture? Is protesting the way forward? Is legislation the way forward? Just let me say very candidly that protesting doesn't do anything. Protesting has never changed anyone. It has never changed anyone in the history of the world. Protesting does not change lives. 
Let me also say that with regards to legislation and the amount of energy and money that we invest in wanting to change that, that laws don't change lives. Not even God's law changed lives. The New Testament says that the, the law is powerless to save or to change us. Laws don't change lives. And, and, and may I testify that laws don't keep people from doing what they want to do. I'm not saying that we should never protest. Maybe somebody should at some time. I don't know. And I'm not saying that, that, that we shouldn't work to change laws. I, I think we probably should. I'm just saying that I don't think that's the way forward. Maybe there's another way forward. You see, the scriptural principles here that, that many of us are agreeing upon are only agreed upon when, when you have the eyes of faith, the community of the church, and the belief that the Bible is the word of God. If you don't have the eyes of faith, the community of the church, and the belief that the Bible is the word of God, then you're not going to agree upon these principles. Therefore, we cannot expect broader society to think the way that we ought to think about abortion. It requires the eyes of faith, the community of the church, and a belief that the Bible is the word of God. Broader society does not hold to those things. So, so we cannot expect them to think and feel the way that we ought to think and feel about abortion. We stand in relation to culture much in the same way that the early church stood in relation to the Roman Empire. And when Jesus was confronted with the atrocities of the Roman Empire, the perversion of the Roman Empire, who also killed their children, unwanted children were birthed and put on a trash heap and died of exposure. We do it a little differently. But when Jesus was confronted with the perversions and the atrocities and the failures of the Roman Empire, he, he didn't protest. nor did he seek to change Roman laws. What Jesus endeavored to do was to change people. What Jesus endeavored to do was to create a new community of changed people. And then he would send different, changed, new people into the world to show the world a new, different, changed way. And part of the testimony of history is that the Roman Empire and the world was changed through changed people. God's goal in Christ in the early church being confronted with Roman perversion was not to protest or to legislate, but to transform. And, and Jesus went to those who believed the lies of culture and so were broken and perverted and loved on them. Zacchaeus, was doing what was acceptable by Roman law as an oppressive tax collector. Jesus didn't protest him. Jesus went and dined with him in his home. And when Jesus left his home, Zacchaeus was a changed man. We're called to be changed people who would display and offer a new way of living. As Richard B. Hayes says, a counter community of witness summoning the world to see the gospel in action. You see, I don't think that protesting or anger is the gospel in action. I, I don't think that ever represents the gospel. I think it's unchristian and ineffective. To protest in anger 
is to do something that's totally foreign to the person of Christ. Violence or threats against clinics and doctors, something that would be totally foreign to the person of Jesus, his message and his methods. But if we look at ourselves, and if we as a Christian community, believing the scriptures ourselves, would begin to live in accordance with them, even if only among ourselves, if we believe and begin to live in accordance with them, then truth and another way of doing things would be put on display. When we begin to believe that life is precious enough to be defended and cared for at all costs, not, not by protests, but by means like adoption and generous support, when we expand the scope of our moral obligation and compassion to include the most helpless, when we start being like Jesus in our willingness to give up our rights and our comforts and even suffer to bear the burdens of others. You see, if we were able to begin to do this in the community of believers with one another, just get it together right here, then we would be putting on display an entirely different way to deal with the issues that cause abortion. And the world would notice and they would then invite us to help them sort through their issues that sometimes lead to abortion. We, we would be invited in to help solve the issues facing our culture. And, and there would be true transformation through that selfless sort of expose of who Christ has called us to be in culture. Tim Keller said, Christianity will not be effective enough to win influence except through sacrificial service to all people regardless of their beliefs. Having said that, I have to say this, even if, if we did, by God's grace, someday, somehow, as the church, get our demonstration together, in other words, even if we were showing the world a different way by living that way with each other, that demonstration isn't enough. We always need proclamation. We always have to be truth tellers in society. We always have to say what God has said. We always have to represent the truth in the midst of competing truth claims. But the way that we voice truth is everything. Understand it this way, because for many, this is an issue of rights and women's rights, okay? Because women see this, some of them, as, as I have this right to decide whether or not I'm going to bear this child. Then we who might oppose that perspective are seen by them as being oppressive. We're seen by them as people who want to take away their rights, suppress their rights. So for them, okay, for them, we must understand it. They, they feel as though our perspective is oppressive to them. So then if in our proclamation, there's the slightest hint of, of oppressive aggression or judgmental haughtiness, then we will not be heard. We lose our right to be heard. They will not hear us. We're already seen as being oppressive. 
The second most prominent view of Christians from non-Christians in America is that we're judgmental. They already see us as oppressive and judgmental. So, so if our truth-telling is anything but humble and loving and generous, then, then we've lost the possibility of being heard. <clears throat> There's a recent article in the Huffington Post last week called Roe v. Wade, 38th anniversary, a time for celebration and commitment. And the writer there suggested this. Here's how Christians deal with the abortion issue. They don't do it through education or other means. They do it by, quote, publicly shaming those who have had an abortion. The, the, the author of this article was of the opinion that the way that we deal with the abortion issue is by seeking to publicly shame other people. Now, that might not be totally accurate. That might be a bit of a caricature or a stereotype, but it is imperative that we as Christians in this culture listen to the stereotypes that are being put on us. Because there's always there some grain of truth. If we're perceived, even perceived, as those who want to deal with this issue by shaming people, then there's no way that they perceive us as those who want to help them by loving and giving and by representing Jesus. There's no way that they think we represent Jesus if they think that our modus operandi is to shame people. The gospel never aims at shaming. It always aims at redemption and healing. Because of the gospel, we lose the right to shame people. Christ was publicly shamed for us so that we would never be shamed again. Christ was publicly shamed for all of humanity. Therefore, in the gospel truth, we lose the right to ever want to publicly shame anybody. And therefore, according to the gospel and the work of God, shame never brings change. Shame never changes people. It is true that abortion is worthy of shame and public shame. It is true that we are all worthy of public shame, but Jesus was publicly shamed for us that we might experience and give grace, mercy, and acceptance. We never, we never get to shame people. The story of abortion can be understood through the lens of the story of God and humanity. The story of God and humanity is this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God created all things and they were good and very good. Fall, Humanity rebelled and it was bad and very bad. Redemption, Jesus came and saved us to the uttermost. Restoration, the Holy Spirit is currently restoring all things and God will ultimately restore all things when Christ comes again. The story of God and humanity is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The story of abortion is creation. Life was created by God through Christ. And then it goes to the fall, something has gone wrong, something isn't right. 
For us to enter that story with shame is to circumvent and hijack the story of God for humanity. The only point into which Christians can enter the story of the person considering abortion is the point of redemption. We're to enter their stories of pain and failure in the fall after creation at the point of redemption. And we are then to offer redemption theologically, an explanation of the cross, and practically a willingness to care for and shoulder the burden. We are called to enter the story for broken people at the point of redemption and then work with them toward restoration. And only this brings lasting change. Shame will never do. It will never change people or societies. The interesting thing is that many, not all, but many men and women who are guilty of abortion, already feel ashamed. And it's difficult for them because they grew up in a culture that told them it's okay to get an abortion. And then they have one and they don't feel okay. And so they're vexed and they're confused. I, everyone, my, my teachers, everybody told me it was okay, but I don't feel okay. And then there's a sense of isolation that comes to them because society told me it was okay, I don't feel okay. I don't think I could go to society for help because something must be wrong with me. And even worse, they say, I don't think I can go to the church because I think they want me to feel ashamed and judged. And this leaves the man or the woman affected by abortion in a place of isolation loneliness and pray to the accuser who would want them to wallow in their shame. Our strategy in life should be to befriend and to radically love the most at risk in society. To find a befriend and radically love the most at risk in society and to love them in such a way that when something happens, they feel at ease and comfort to say, this has happened. Show me a different way to deal with it than what culture is showing me. And there's the door for redemption and restoration. Beauty goes so much further to transform things and shame does. The author of that book I earlier recommended, The Next Christians, Gabe Lyons, his child was diagnosed, his first child with Down syndrome while in the womb. He and his wife had the child. And as the child grew, they realized the love and the joy and the life that came from this child into their life. And, and, and they sought fellowship with others who were experiencing children with Down syndrome. But it, it was hard to find them because 90% of them had been aborted. And in a desire to change that number, seeing the life and the love and the beauty that came from their own child with Down syndrome, they thought, what, what can we do to change this? And they didn't seek to shame culture. What they did was seek to show culture something beautiful. So they made a booklet that talked about more hopeful options for a couple or a mother whose child in the womb is diagnosed with Down syndrome. And they filled it. They found the best photographer they could, and they filmed it with beautiful images of Down syndrome children. 
children with Down syndrome. Beautiful images and families. And by the grace of God, they got it placed in clinics and doctor's offices and hospitals in the Atlanta area. And doctors seeing this begin to agree to present a more hopeful option to people whose unborn children were diagnosed with Down syndrome. The beauty and showing forth the beauty did so much more to change the way that people thought and felt than if they had tried to shame culture into something. God's just not in the shame. What does God do with our shame? He shows mercy. He removes our shame. He was shamed for us. What what does God do with the ashes of our lives and our abortions? He gives us beauty for those ashes. That's who God is. That's who God does. And I need to say to any men, any women here who are touched by this issue, who are aching because of this issue, who feel shamed and condemned because of this issue, that in Jesus Christ and because of his work on the cross, there is total and complete forgiveness and healing and freedom that you can feel brand new, accepted, loved, and adored because of what Christ has done. I want to bring my friend Christy up right now. And Christy is just going to testify real quickly, having experienced that forgiveness and that love of Jesus. blessed to be a part of a women's ministry called Wonderfully Made. And um, our theme verse for this year is, those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Um, I had two abortions, one when I was 15 and one when I was 18. And um, I grew up in a home learning um, about the developmental stages of babies in the womb, their little fingers and their toes. We had a room in the back of our house that unwed mothers would stay in until they had their babies. And so um, when I was pregnant and I chose to have the abortions, I knew that I was killing my own children. But the thing about fear um, for me was that I was so scared of being alone and losing um, the boyfriends that I had at the time, um, and just also the selfishness in my own heart um, that, I, that I went ahead and I aborted my children. But the Lord never left me, and he never forsook me. Even in the recovery room of Planned Parenthood, I just, the love of the Lord, I just felt him saying, Christy, I love you. I want you back. And Easter of 2008, um, Easter morning, I recommitted my life to the Lord. And still, though, accepting his forgiveness um, for my abortions was really hard for me. I just had a lot of guilt, and um, I was listening to the enemy's voice of accusation. But God's mercy was so much greater in my life. And he called me up here to the red carpets one morning, and I was on my face before the Lord. And he just gave me the most beautiful vision. It was like Jesus was just right there with me and... He had my two children with him, and I just looked into those eyes that remove all of our guilt and all of our shame. 
And he just said, Christy, we're waiting for you. And he had my babies, and they're so beautiful and just glowing, and I'm so excited to see them in heaven someday. So anyway, thank you for being my community, and um, it's just meant so much to me having, yeah, being in this body of love. So. Those of you that need to hear that, hear that. Jesus heals, he forgives. There's nothing you've done that he can't forgive. There's no stain too great that he can't remove. Then Isaiah said to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for your ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. For those of you that are despairing, mourning, you need to know that God wants to restore and redeem and heal through the cross of Jesus Christ, and he's here for you today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and give us a revelation of Christ. We ask that those who are in need of forgiveness would call upon you. Those who are in need of healing would call upon you. Those of us in need of restoration would seek you. Thank you that you are the God who opens up the door of hope in the valley of trouble, that you're near to the brokenhearted, that when we repent of our sins, times of refreshing come from being in your presence. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and pour the love of the Father abroad for those that are broken and mourning and guilty. You would make us new and pure and innocent and full of joy and peace, that you would show forth your acceptance that you gained for us before God through the cross. And then, Lord, as, as changed, adopted, and adored people, show us a way forward in our world on this issue. Show us a way forward, Lord. Make us those people that are shaped by your word and conform to your image that show the world a different way.